Hi, this is Bonnie Pugh with the Union Podcast. So glad to have you here. I'm excited for you to listen into this conversation that I recently had with Dr. Julia Sadusky. She is, has her doctorate in psychology and currently is serving as a clinical psychologist in Denver, Colorado. Her and Dr. Mark Yearhouse recently released a book called Emerging Gender Identities, although understanding the diverse experiences of today's youth. Honestly, this book, uh, you know, it's pretty catchy visually, has a, it's an orange one, it has an image of a butterfly, a monarch butterfly on the front. And uh, when I picked it up, you know, I just was all through it, underlining and making little asterisks and, you know, asking questions. And anyways, I think that this book is going to be a huge um, asset uh, to you as a reader. Dr. Julia Sadusky, her approach um, it's so evident in our conversation. I can see that she is a woman truly of compassion and her hope is to remind us to, as you know, followers of Christ or leaders within the church community that we would be people who would invite others to join us, who would not, you know, if kind of following actually the pattern of Christ where he, it says that he humbled himself, lowered himself and came to us. He didn't, he didn't demand that humanity find their way to him, but rather he found his way to them. And, uh, and we we're called to, to pattern our lives after that. So, you know, right now in culture, there are honestly a thousand opinions on the topic of gender identities. This isn't even, you know, we're not even going near the topic of homosexuality, uh, but just simply gender. You know, it feels like it feels like you could be at risk of, of being canceled even if you just ask the wrong questions when you're just trying to learn or understand. And honestly, the online feels like just a minefield of like, what information can I trust? And what do, the, what do these words even mean? And so I really hope that this conversation serves you and helps you begin to understand for the sake of your children, for the sake of your grandchildren, for the sake of your coworkers or for your, you know, your classmates or maybe your neighbors, that you would be able to just kind of get your bearings a little bit. And the book, it really doesn't, it really doesn't dive too much into this is what we think you should think, but rather these are the different views that are out right now. Here are the main trends of why people think that, um, you know, people think that this issue is is on the rise even, or statistically, why is there so many more people who are identifying in these gender diverse ways? And so our conversation, you know, is, I want it to, I want you to know it's Christ focused, but it's also, you know, there might be things that that are said that you go, I don't know what I think about that. And that's okay. We just think the conversation is worth having, even if we don't get it all right. So um, pairing that actually with another episode that's going to be coming out, coming out next, Brian sat down with an amazing woman named Carissa Shockley. And so I want you to make sure you catch that one as well. She is a woman uh, who, you know, identified as a man for a long time and then had this radical encounter with Jesus Christ. And it just flipped her world upside down. And now she has quite a few things to say about it and has the story, the testimony to go along with it. So, um, you know, take it all, take it in. We are doing our best to be a voice here that can, um, you know, bring biblical truth, biblical clarity mixed with this, you know, this message of redemption um, and a compassionate, you know, the compassionate God that we serve. That's our, that's our heart. Um, yeah, so I'm going to, we're going to dive into that conversation, but quickly, I also want to share something really exciting that, uh, this, uh, this fall 2021, Brian and I are officially launching full time into being able to develop the union movement. So back in November, 2018, we started out, we had this dream in our heart. We want to bring truth, you know, around God's, God's kind boundaries and design for sexuality, his restorative power 
in our lives when we've done things we regret or things have been done to us that have wounded us, that our, fu- that our future doesn't have to be dictated by our past, you know. So we've been working on the podcast and online resources, e-courses. Um, and this fall, we feel like it's time for us to launch full time and really do our best to become just a support for local churches, for local church leaders who are, they're trying, you know, to stand with their hand just like on the scriptures and their and their you know heart open to the Holy Spirit, saying, "God, help us translate the word into people's lives so that people can be restored, uh, much like." you know, the church has throughout history. So uh, we, yeah, we're doing it full time. It's going to be awesome. I'm still, you know, I'm still a homeschool mom and, and we got, you know, our little boy is, our youngest is still just under one, at one years old. So we're busy at home, but our main focus is going to be on being here for you. So if the union movement has been a source of hope for you, or you believe in what we're doing, we so value your partnership, your support, and every time, you know, somebody just like you gives a financial donation or shares a blog post or, you know, sends a, a podcast episode to a friend, like those those little things honestly make such a huge difference for us. So if you, you know, want to continue doing that or you've never done it before and want to start, we're glad to have you. You can even reach out to us, info at the union movement, um, or you can DM us over on Instagram. We're happy to connect with with everybody that who, you know, who is finding this this stuff are uh, impactful in their life. So that all being said, love you to jump into this conversation, Dr. Julia Sadesky, and uh, pray that it's a support to you. You're listening to The Union Podcast. The Union exists to bring biblical confidence and clarity to the topics of relationships and sexuality. On this podcast, we unpack the damaging effects of modern sex culture and discuss how to heal from the past and enrich your relationships. Here are your hosts, Brian and Bonnie Pugh. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Julia Sadesky, for being with us here today on the Union Podcast. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. Me too. It's so good to be here. Uh, so you have recently, um, you know, released this book. You co-authored with Mark Yearhouse called "Emerging Gender Gender Identities," um, with the subtitle "Understanding the Diverse Experiences of Today's Youth." Now, I've got to say that reading through this book, I've underlined so many things, and I felt like it was such a good. Um, I j- I'll just say this: sometimes when you go online and you just want to search things, you can get such a wide range of answers. But I felt like you guys did an incredible job of being informative and compassionate and just like giving an over, like just such a good overview for parents and counselors and people who are helping young people today. So thank you for releasing this book. You are welcome. Yeah, it was a a project that we joke that we say it wrote itself because it really came out of talks and trainings that we had been doing for a couple of years and just realizing there's not a lot available out there on pastoral care. You know, how do you do relationships with real people? And then ultimately, what do you need to know as a baseline for education, you know, to be able to show up in those relationships in a helpful and Christ-like way? Yeah, I love that. Showing up in a Christ-like way. You're right. Um, So here, you know, I, I find that the topics can be pretty intimidating. Maybe that's one reason there's not a ton of um, resources available is that it's just an intimidating topic because there's such a fear of getting it wrong. Or uh, maybe even like, what if I, what if I say something wrong and then I end up getting completely misunderstood and canceled? So can you maybe just, you know, talk about why it's so important that we as followers of Christ and then leaders within the church can even 
just start joining the conversation even before we know all the answers? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I, I think that there is a real question for many young people today as to does God love me right now today? Does God care about me mm-hmm. uniquely? And and what's their best gauge of whether the answer to that question is yes or no is how followers of Christ kind of embodied people show up to them and for them in their life. And even if you feel like for you, you know, this is kind of something you've thought through, you've thought critically about, and it's not personally salient. I think for any of us, when people who love us step into the fray with us to the parts of our lives that are personally salient for us, it says something about God's desire to be there too. And so, you know, why is it so important? I mean, even if there was one person in in our entire body, right, of, of Christ who was navigating gender dysphoria or who had questions around gender, in my mind, you know, if we opt out, we can't do that in the name of Christ because he sought out the one, right? And so um, that's why I think it's important. I mean, I would assume you'll say the wrong thing or maybe better said, say the hurtful thing at different points because we do that in human relationships. We mess up, Um, you know, I mess up and, (laughs) uh, you know, this is my specialty. And so I'm constantly learning and being stretched to listen, um, to try to build trust through real relationships relationships and acknowledge harm done by people in Jesus's name. And that really sets me up to step in with a more humility, I think. And, um, I would not avoid this out of fear. Uh, I don't think that sets us up very well to do ministry. Absolutely. I really appreciated, um, in the early chapters of emerging gender identities, I really felt that you, you both, um, brought a history, like you're saying history to the harm or history to the, these are what the, this is what the cultural narrative used to be. And that Mm -hmm. has created pain. And so what can we do to bring healing to those places? Um, in my own research, that was really eye-opening for me, even just years ago, um, realizing just the, um, yeah, the pain that was caused by the church, not even by the church, I would say Mm -hmm. even just by society at large. And so we have, um, there's some healing to be done in order to even be welcomed into the conversation. And, uh, I thought it also, you guys did a really good job, um, talking about the difference between, um, the political and the public or personal identities. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I think when we, we talk about gender identity and we're trying to match it with our, you know, our doctrines or our theology and like, well, the Bible says this is that we can forget that these are actual, like, it's not all a political agenda. It's not like these are individual people, especially you talk so much about the young generation. Um, can you just talk maybe if you could explain, you'd do a better job than I would about, about that difference between the public, um, the political and the personal identities and how we can interact with them with them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think that, um, one of the things we were noticing in working with people in ministry, parents, you know, is there was a ton of reactivity yeah. to every young person, every person that I was meeting with who was asking questions about gender as if each of them was becoming a kind of caricature for a political or sociocultural movement around gender theory or mm-hmm. deconstructing norms of sex and gender. And so what we did was um, in the book, we parsed out a little bit more, okay, who are we talking about when we're talking about 
people for whom gender uh, has become a source of political identity. So these are your advocates or activists in the space um, who are kind of behind legislative educational shifts that we're seeing, who may be very different in their worldview and their, you know, kind of theology from a historic Christian worldview. And so you're going to do ministry relationship interactions with individuals in that space really differently than you are hopefully with your neighbor or the person that you're, who's checking you out at the grocery store or a kid who comes into youth group and they say, you know, I'm here with a friend and, and I'm trans. Like, how do you, how do you do relationships? That's public identity, right? The friends, colleagues, neighbors Mm -hmm. uh, who you meet, who adopt a transgender or non-binary identity. And then the private or personal domain is the, the person personally struggling with gender identity questions. So they're not even saying this is who I am. They're not even saying I figured this all out. They're, they're saying, Hey, I have these questions. Can you help me? And for parents, adults of all stages in life to deal with our own reactivity and anxiety about what does this mean? Where will we be 10 years from now? Yeah. And to say, okay, you're not the activist, you know, fighting for the bathroom bill that I've heard about on the news. I mean, you're a human being. I know your name. I care mm-hmm. about you. I want to hear your story. Um, that equips you way differently uh, than reacting to everybody the same way. So that's that's the spirit of that is really disentangling so that we can be more precise in our pastoral care mm-hmm. um, instead of speaking past the experience of the person in front of us, presuming we know a lot about political ideologies there. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, even as we're, man, as you're talking about that, I feel like uh, I was talking with my husband in reading through this book. And I said, first of all, the differentiation between gender identity, um, the gender, you know, these new, like the new names we're having for gender identities, um, the, even the differentiation, differentiation between that and then homosexuality, like these are very, these are different things. Like you, you mentioned in the book, sometimes they'll be uh, like, they'll be tangled together. Not always. Like sometimes this is very much just about how an individual is seeing themselves or experiencing. And I said to my husband, honestly, if I was a teenager now, mm-hmm. I think that I would have, I would have been hot. Like I would have used some of this language to describe myself. Well, you know, like when I was, when I'm a 10 year old, I'm thinking, I don't know if I'm very good at, I don't think I'm really good at being a girl is maybe the language I would have said, or I think it would have been better to be a boy. Right. Mm-hmm. So then you put, you know, you transplant me 20 years into the future. Now there's going to be new language around me. Maybe I would have said, am I in the wrong body? Right. Like that's the language around would have been around me. So I was, I'm actually very sympathetic to the, these like, you know, young men or women who are going, and we'll talk, I'd love to talk about this more later in our conversation, but I don't, these stereotypes, what's wrong with me? And so, but maybe we should identify there's a difference between gender dysphoria and identifying as transsexual or transgender. Mm-hmm. Do you mind right. going into some of those, even though some of, some of those words, we don't even know what they mean. Right. Uh, so could you go through some yeah. of them? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great, great question. So I think um, one of my biggest pet peeves and friends of mine joke about this a little bit is one of my biggest pet peeves is when people use language like transgenderism. And I, I think we're talking there's explicitly about ideology. We're not talking about people. And so with any of these terms, I like to make a note that we're using them, you know, as adjectives to to describe people, right? So a transgender person, a person with gender dysphoria um, is is the way you use those terms. And then let's get 
get into the nitty gritty, right? So, so even when you're saying that, about? you're saying mm-hmm. their whole identity isn't wrapped up in the fact that this is, right? This is a part of who they That's are. Right. It's not the only thing about them that we need yeah. to be seeing. Exactly. And I think we can be in Christian circles um, enormously reductive, actually, in yes. how we think and talk about people that we say, oh, if you use this term, that means that you're telling me that's all that you are. And, you know, we all use descriptive terms to describe aspects of our experience. And that's really how I talk about it aspects of our experience of the world that informs a lot. It informs how we approach God, how we approach one another, and how we approach ourselves. And so I think the language, uh, and being a student of the language that people are using, even if you have enormous questions and important questions about why, right, Mm -hmm. to be able to speak to that and understand that. So let me bore the audience with definitions, right? That's helpful. So helpful. Yeah. So so transgender um, is an umbrella term that would describe many experiences of gender identity, um, such as things like non-binary, gender creative, gender non-binary, gender fluid, gender expansive, um, just the many ways in which somebody's gender identity may not align with their natal or biological or birth sex, right? Mm-hmm. When we think of biological or birth sex, we're really talking about the combination of physical characteristics, including things like genitals, chromosomes, sex hormone levels that would be typical of males or females. Okay. So that's biological sex or natal sex. Mm -hmm. Um, Gender is the psychological, social, and cultural aspects of being kind of male or female. Gender identity is then, I think of it as more kind of the personal experience of self. So -hmm. sometimes we talk about it, how you think about yourself, but I don't want to be reductive in that, but this isn't purely a thought experiment. I think I'm different. This is a experience of self as either male, female, um, masculine, or feminine, or, or something else, right? That's where those emerging gender identities come in. Mm-hmm. And so transgender, right? That umbrella term for many ways, people don't experience their gender identity as aligning with their natal sex. Gender dysphoria is a psychological term um, that is used to describe distress associated with what we think of as a lack of congruence mm-hmm. between natal or birth sex and um somebody's gender identity. And so when those things stand in conflict with one another, and that causes intense distress for a person, right, right, uh, which can vary in terms of severity, um, you can be diagnosed by a mental health professional with gender dysphoria, okay? Um, And again, that resides on a continuum, not the same for every person, but certainly not everybody who adopts a transgender identity label has gender dysphoria. Because they're fine with it. They're like, no, this is, I've embraced it. I don't feel distress about it. That's right. Mm -hmm. And um, not everybody who has gender dysphoria identifies as transgender. And so when a person says, hey, I'm asking questions, I'm wrestling with gender dysphoria, they're not telling you about identity labels necessarily, right? Um, You know, Mark Earhouse often quotes a colleague that said, if you've met one transgender person, you've met one transgender person. And I think that's helpful with insert gender dysphoria, insert, you know, if you met one person, you've met one person. And so 
knowing these terms gives us a little bit of a lay of the land yeah. um, where we can talk more dispassionately about what we're talking about without being kind of ridiculing or mocking um, of terms mm-hmm. that we've never heard before, uh, which are, are newer and emerging all the time. Yeah. Here's maybe, you know, another question. If, you know, if we weren't recording and we were just sitting across the table at, you know, a coffee shop, I would say, what's the, what would be the difference between like gender expansive, gender fluid, you know, like kind of, it sounds like they're very similar. I think mm-hmm. there was another one you said too, where it sounds very similar. Are there distinctives between those phrases or is that just different words to describe the same thing? So, so it really depends on uh, who you're talking to. I mean, some people see things like gender expansive, gender creative as, as other umbrella terms, right. Mm-hmm. That can describe okay. in a less pathologizing way. Maybe I think they would say these experiences. So gender creative has kind of a positive connotation, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, gender non-binary, I think is a pretty specific term that talks more about people who don't see their gender identity as fit cleanly within a male female binary. So that's the binary I don't fit. And so I'm opting out of that kind of categorization. And so that's maybe the one that's a little bit more precise, but, you know, all of these terms end up being used for many different, I think, specific definitions, depending on the person you're talking to. And I think things like Reddit, things like social media, make it a little bit harder for us to keep tabs on what, what those definitions are. Yes. Um, but, I, but I guess the last thing I'll note on definitions is that there are increasingly some people who do even find terms like gender dysphoria as, as troubling or frustrating mm-hmm. for them. They see that if we just didn't have the so, social norms of kind of a binary, then we wouldn't have dysphoria at all. And so mm-hmm. that's an interesting kind of perspective there. And one that you will hear from young mm-hmm. people is don't talk about dysphoria, talk about me as this is who I am. And so again, you can see how these conversations allow us to speak so quickly past each other. Totally. Because then if we eliminate that concept of gender dysphoria, I mean, that really is some people's experience where they're, where they're saying, no, this is what I feel, but I don't want to, are they allowed to feel that? But if they're not allowed to feel that in a social, in our, so in our society, then it, this is where it, it kind of ties the hands of people who would say, I want to help you through your gender dysphoria. It's like, no, no, you're not allowed to do that because everyone's not supposed to feel that way. Right. Right. Yeah. That is interesting. That would be, that creates a predicament. That's exactly right. That creates quite a predicament. And I think even within our field, there's a rest between how do we, how do we approach these conversations respectful of where people are in their own understanding while also holding to some sense of I don't know, reverence, I think of it as, as that for the people I know with gender dysphoria who do and are grateful that there is a diagnostic category for the pain that they experience that helps with, um, helping other people understand them better. And for them, it is something that's more like a a disorder to them than an aspect of their identity. And so to presume that every person, again, in the space thinks about it in that more in the book, we talk about the diversity lens, I think. Yes. uh, Yeah. Remember that. And so not everybody under the uh, transgender umbrella, if you will, or people with gender dysphoria think about it in that way. And so how do we make space for uh, the people for whom this is a deeply felt pain. 
for them and they don't, they themselves don't attribute it purely to culture. Yeah. And you, um, I found it really interesting. There was a quote in there or a question, um, where you talked about translated in a foreign language. Mm-hmm. And this is where we're talking about the definitions. You say, we ask, you ask the question, what does it look like to become a student of culture without internalizing every current cultural narrative as absolute truth? And you, it was posed almost like a rhetorical question. Like, how do, how do we do that? What do you, what do you say, you know, in that place where it's like other people are having these legitimate experiences. And as a, you know, as someone who, you know, trying to follow the teachings of Christ and the traditions of, um, of biblical, of biblical narrative, how do we do that? How do we hold to our own? Like, this is what I believe, but I'm going to make sure that I, what I believe doesn't like disrupt our chance of relationship or connection. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's, it's a great, um, yeah, thought experiment. I think the fun part about writing a book is you don't have to answer every question, right? You can just pose a good one and then let people figure it out, but, but I'll speak to it here. Cause certainly I've thought a lot about it. Um, yeah. you know, my first thought, my gut reaction is, you know, what does it look like? Well, it looks exactly the same as how we do it in other spheres of life. I mean, I, I do think many people of faith are being stretched in this terrain to say, oh, maybe we don't do this as well in other areas too, because we've yes. kind of shied away and we've pulled inward and we've closed ourselves off. And so, you know, I think it's a fear-based strategy to say, I can't try to learn. I can't grab my pen and paper and really become an expert uh, to the degree that I'm able on, on what this culture has to say Mm -hmm. um, without internalizing it completely. I mean, that's very black and white. Right. And, and I do think, I think we do this intuitively, you know, when we watch commercials, when we watch the Super Bowl. I mean, whatever it is, we watch things all the time and we don't agree with every aspect of everything we see. And how do you be discerning and trust the power of the Holy spirit working within each of us and in the body as a whole to be discerning. Right. Um, and, and so number one, trusting God, but also trusting our own formation. And I think there's a fragility that we've put off when we say, I can't hear from you because it might call into question how I've been formed. And, and perhaps there's ways our own formation has been informed by unhelpful things, by inaccurate things like mm-hmm. rigid stereotypes about what it means to be a woman of God, a man of God. And so um, insofar as we can actually not just learn from, but actually be critiqued appropriately uh, by culture. I, I think there's there's truth to that. And the dialogue becomes really important. This is a lost art. And we talk about that in the book too, uh, the lost art of dialogue and debate uh, that's respectable and respectful. Oh, that's huge. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's how I think about it is it's not black and white. Try mm-hmm. it, right? Have you tried it? Um, people often ask me, has my theology changed in the time that I've done this work? Um, and, and it's an interesting question because I think it presumes that it obviously has, because for some reason we see our God as not big enough to contain human experience and the theology that helps us know him. And, and I have not found that stepping into relationship with people for whom I disagree at times um, has threatened my faith. I think it's enhanced and, and wow, forced, yeah. me, forced me to ask questions that I didn't have to ask before, which is good news for me. Right. And I think too of 
the example of our savior. I think if he would have feared the fragility of his own identity or his formation, there's no way he would have come to earth. There's no way he would have sat down for dinner with me or you or any of us. Right. And that's, you know, people, the religious minded would get angry at him and they'd say, who don't you know what kind of person you're sitting with or eating with? And I think, what if we as a church had a reputation for sitting and eating and being friends with, you know, it's like, what? Don't you know they don't believe the same things that you do? Uh, yes, I do, actually. You know, I, and I love them. And that's so significant. And uh, yeah, I feel like if we can embrace a new level of hospitality within the church, then the mm. world will not be so angry at our own. Like, these are my convictions, but my front door to you is wide open. That's you know, right. and there's this old, I, I quote it often, um, but there's this old quote by a, a Roman historian. And he would say about the early church, and this is ref reflecting more on maybe morality in general, but he said about them, those Christians, like they're so absurd because they share their beds with no one and their table with everyone. And I think, oh, you know, like that's what yes. I want to be known for is this incredible, like I, I make my own choices, but my mm -hmm. table is open to everyone. And so, um, I think, you know, maybe this is, this jumps a little bit, you know, in, in our questions here, but what, what can we do? What can parents do within the home leaders within a church community? How can we have that front door open to people, um, and eliminate, uh, you mentioned rigid stereotypes. I think that that's strong. So not just stereotypes about, oh, oh, you're, you're dealing with, uh, you know, you have a different view of gender than I do, but even the stereotypes around male and female that can sometimes actually, it almost pushes people to say, I can't be female then, or I can't be male because I, that's not who I am. And I'm just going to be honest about it. So can you talk a little bit about that? Right. Yeah. Great question. So you know, I think the the conversation around rigid gender stereotypes, if we're if we're talking about that specifically, yeah. uh, is an important one. You know, I think in in youth ministry and church ministry, I've talked with many people who say, you know, why do we do single gender small groups? So why do we do that? Um, but we presume that that's better. But have we tried? You know, mm. blending and seeing what that's like for a little bit. I mean, certainly sometimes we do that. And what's that? What what is that like. Mm -hmm. um, so again, not as much a reactivity, how dare you come at us and try to change our structure, but but what is our structure and how effective is it? And why do we do it? Mm -hmm. And being thoughtful about that, because in any room of, of you know, natal females, you, you're going to get a lot of variety in some totally. cases, more diversity than similarity um, among, among teens, among adults today. And so if we make stereotypes, the gauge of Christian virtue, um, what is that for? And do we have confidence enough that God cares about the length of female hair, for instance, or the, that she wears makeup or dresses and skirts? Do we have enough confidence to say that a person's morality can be gauged by how they dress or how they present. I mean, that's because that's what we're kind of saying when we think more about discipling people with gender dysphoria towards these stereotypes, which has happened historically and, and has done some real harm. Um, but I don't think that's unique to people with gender dysphoria or gender atypicality. I mean, I think those stereotypes do harm to people everywhere, actually. Um, and when you think about, I talk about this as a clinician, 
mentioned to my clients, you know, women not being as able to express anger. There's a lot of terms for a woman being angry that are uh, disrespectful terms to women. Whereas for right. men, it's like, oh, they're, they're strong or they're kind of, you know, dominant or persistent or a leader. And so when we put people in those kinds of rigid boxes, um, we should expect in a culture like ours for people to push back on that as one more source of authority to reject. Mm. And so I, I think that's that's a little bit of that. But what can we do, right? Um, I think we return to an idea of Christian virtue, um, things like gentleness, things like meekness, things like humility, courage, um, justice, temperament, temperance, prudence, mm -hmm. as, as things that we look for as signs of spiritual maturity and things that we move people towards. And that would be something that goes way beyond, you know, your anatomical structuring or your gender identity. I mean, that's the core of what it is to be Christ-like. And that really pushes back on rigid stereotypes. If you think about those virtues totally, um, and how many men are not being shepherded to be meek and many women are not being shepherded to be having a sense of justice that involves righteous anger. And so that's, that's some of what I would say there about that. Yeah, that's significant. I had a very interesting, I had an opportunity to speak to, I think they're, you know, kind of grade 10, 11 girls, um, for a, we went away for like a weekend retreat kind of thing. And I talked a little bit about the, I didn't tell them I was talking about stereotypes, but I did what you said there with the, some of those virtues, you know, mm -hmm. and I just said, could you just tell me where would you like, based on, based on culture, what you think when I say the word gentleness, do you, would you think it's more of a male word or a female word? And they were like, oh, female. And then I was like, hey, what about the word leadership? And they were like, oh, that's a male word. And they just like, I mean, the, this was like current, you know, this current young generation. And they were like, stereotypically, that's a girl word. That's a boy word. And I was like, but do you see that in scripture? It's not like, mm -hmm. and this one girl was like, wait, do you mean I could be a leader too? And I was like, ah, like we are failing you if you like, if you haven't caught that yet. Right. right. And so, um, yes, making more space for, I love what you said. There's so much diversity, even within like, within, like you're saying the natal female, like there's still so much diversity. And that's where as a young woman, I would have really, I did struggle. And I, I thought I relate more with guys, I think. And, and it took, I mean, it took time and it wasn't until I was probably 19, 20, 21, 22 that I started to feel like I'm a, oh, God made me a girl on purpose. Like, and he's not ashamed of my giftings or my personality or my, the way I am that I don't, you know, I don't want to go to the mall all the time. Like, and it's like, why did we think that that's a female thing? That's ridiculous. Right. You know, my femininity is far greater than something like that. So um, maybe you know, just a final question here. When we talk, um, we're seeing an increase for sure. You know, statistically, we're seeing an increase of, of young people who are identifying um, with either, like you're saying, non-binary or transgender, um, gender creative, gender fluid. Um, and there's kind of, there can be these different viewpoints of why that's happening. Could you, you know, you explained it very well in the book. Would you mind taking some time? Because there are some like two polarizing opinions on what those would be. And I think our listeners would benefit to, to recognize it might not be one or the other. So would you mind sharing about that? Sure thing. Yeah. I mean, I think when with anything as nuanced as gender, there's not going to be one theory that really captures everything. Um, and, and so I'll, I certainly give you the terms we use in the book, one theory being a self-awareness theory. 
another being a social contagion theory. Um, and then we present a third option uh, called the looping effect in the book. And so when we say self-awareness theory, we're really talking about the people who would say, oh, thank God that we are talking about this today because so many more people can come to self-awareness of this aspect of their personhood sooner. Okay. Nice. So the idea being that these young people always existed, but they were forced into rigid boxes because there were not these other categories available to them. And so we're so thankful that, that they're able to be self-aware sooner. Right. Mm -hmm. And so even seeing kiddos as kind of being the teachers on their own gender identity. Absolutely. Um, which I, I do think, you know, my kind of critique, critique of that position, if you're purely there, is that I, I find it to be quite optimistic for the capacity of every person in this space to figure out almost in a bubble of their own knowing, um, their own experience of something as complex as their gender identity. The other theory, right, social contagion, uh, talks a lot more about people's social groups and how identifying as transgender can be seen by some people as a cultural trend. And so is this something that people are kind of catching um, in a way of this is cool, this is trending, and so this will give me a sense of identity. Um, that's social contagion. You know, my critique of that one uh, would be that it's an oversimplification of the people for whom this has been their experience from age three, four. Um, and even if it's later, you know, I don't find, even given the trend right now, that most people I meet with see this as a way to make their parents really proud of them or to kind of move up the social ladder. I mean, that's just a trite simplification. And even that framing of catching it, um, I think if you say that to anybody for whom this is their story, they will not respect you enough because it's a very reductive way of thinking about it. So you know, what we talk about in the book is something called the looping effect, which I, you know, it's hard to explain uh, simply, but I, I think the idea there is that, you know, human beings, if we label them, they interact with the labels we give them as opposed to a chemical compound that doesn't change when I name right. it. So, so Ian Hacking uh, is the one who promoted this theory and thinking, in what ways do the labels that we give people, even diagnostic terms, which can change over time, impact the very people we're diagnosing that develop new ways of thinking about themselves, of experiencing themselves, talking about themselves and living and moving in the world. And then we study those individuals and then we say oh this is the re taken for granted reality that we're going to put forth in kind of specialty clinics as as fact and then we change our diagnostic labels based on what we're learning about people but they're also interacting with the terms we give them and so you know I, I think it thickens the plot a little bit more as to how do we as a mental health field impact young people today um, how do researchers and specialists and the way we think about and talk about gender impact young people and the categories they're going to move towards? Um, and we also make a note about rigid stereotypes and certainly how for some young people that creates a really unique challenge for them today to the points that you made earlier. Now, a caveat is it would not be sufficient for cases of gender dysphoria to simply uh, change the way we talk about males and females and say, oh, that will be curative. I have not seen that be an effective resolution, if you will, in, in severe cases of dysphoria. So I, I don't want to overstate that, but I don't think those stereotypes help anybody. And to your point earlier, they're clearly very present 
today. And, and we have a lot more work to do on that. I think we could spend some energy there as opposed to some of the energy we've spent towards villainizing transgender people. Yeah. That's wonderful. Thank you for explaining that. Um, I mean, man, reading, reading through the book, I feel like it is a very, um, it's just very, it's a treasure. And I could imagine a lot of parents, you know, and I'm, we're going to put this in the show notes of how to, you know, to, we'll link it and get people the avail- availability to access it. Um, Cause you talk about like, what, what, what do parents do? You know what? And, and you even outline here this, there's this theory of what you can do. There's this theory of how you can support. There's this theory, um, you know, whether they're, whether they're young, your child is young or maybe getting a little bit older, your role might feel is going to have to feel different. Um, and so we'll make sure, you know, there's just so many other topics I know we could talk about here in this conversation. Um, but that's why you wrote the book is so that, uh, so that everyone can have access to this information. Um, but one thing you said in there was just about, about the labels that we're not reducing, we're not reducing people. Um, and you, you talked about the label beloved. Can mm-hmm. you just share a little bit about God's heart of like, regardless of your experience, he still calls you beloved. He would call, you know, call you and call you into his beloved. Yeah. Well, I think the idea of, uh, of our God of Christ, right. Is, is the idea that God loved humanity so much, right. That he came to us and elevated our humanity. And he didn't say, let me elevate the, the healed humanity. Right. He said, no, no, trust me, like draw near to me. Right. For I'm meek and humble of heart and you will find rest, but not today, not in this moment. And so What's so sad to me about our failings as Christians is we have communicated to people that maybe if you figure this thing out, God will love you. Maybe if you figure this out a certain way. And in a certain amount of time. And in a certain amount of time and using language that really helps me understand it. God will love you. And then I will show you his love. And let me tell you, it's a beautiful love. And it's like, well, then we're not talking about the Christian God, right? Um, because his love is unconditional. And, and even in the prodigal son narrative, right? Even while the son was a long way off, he was waiting for him. And how the heck do we do that, right? Well, we have to give that language to young people. You are beloved now. Beloved, you are God's children now, right? And if a God loves me now, when I don't even love myself now, which is the case for many of these young people, you know, that's pretty uncomfortable actually. And I might push back on that love and try to distance from that love, but the love that pursues and the love that labels and says, no, 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 you are that now pierces through. And it's unlike anything in our culture, anything in our world. And that's the gift we give young people is we can't promise them that, that Christianity will make them more cool than other kids or more likable or um, more funny, but it will in- allow them to encounter a person who loves them beyond all telling and who will never leave them, will never forsake them no matter what, right? That's what it means to be beloved. And so when we talk about these kids as being delusional or being disturbed or being naive or and that's all we say about them. They walk away with something other than I'm beloved. And so we have work to do, I think first, and we say this in the book, in encountering what it means that we're beloved mm. in our frailties, in our sins, that we're not magically healed of all our brokenness because we committed our life to Christ. Right. And then out of that encounter with a person, we turn out to, 
to fellow, you know, children of God or people made in him his, his image and we love on them. And if they opt out and they say, I don't want to come over to your dinner table because of this or that thing, let them, right? Right. But I don't think we invite. And I think we often presume that they'll say no. Hmm. Right. And then, and then they never know like an identity beyond what the world would give them or what they themselves feel about themselves. Oh, yeah, man. I just, you know, if there's, there's anyone listening right now, just need you to know that there is a table open to you. Even think of Jesus, you know, in the book of revelations, it talks about Jesus standing at the door and he's like, Hey, if you will let me in, then I'd love to eat with you. I'd love to have a meal with you. And that invitation, I mean, now in our fast paced culture, it can be like, you know, pop something in the microwave, eat it standing at the island and run back out the door. But what Jesus was referring to there is it was to have dinner with someone, to have a meal with somebody was to say, I will be your friend. Like I would like to know about you and we'll linger over this and we'll sit around. And I mean, I think of my experience, you know, my family wasn't perfect by any means, but one thing we did well was sit long time after dinner at the table and we'd always get the cookie jar out and then we would eat way too many, you know, <laughs> and just tell stories and, you know, ask my dad, tell me, you know, tell me stories again of when you were, you know, you were a kid and, and the lingering, you know, mm. and I just wonder how many how many young people just really need to linger with some family and discover that their place among, you know, among a family in the midst of a family. And so as the church and as individual families, we become the, the hands of God that reach out. So, uh, Dr. Sadesky, thank you so much for your time today. And uh, again, we'll, sh we'll share in the show notes of how people can come into, uh, you know, get in contact with you or access your information. Um, thank you for, yeah, just your compassionate uh, reach to the young people. And uh, we'll sign off for now. Thanks for listening to The Union Podcast. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you please email us at podcast at theunionmovement.com. For more information, please visit our website, theunionmovement.com, or find us on Facebook and Instagram at The Union Movement.